Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting science story that we covered this week. East Africa is facing a locust swarm of biblical proportions. It is the worst it has been in decades and could get 500 times worse by June. The swarms threaten farms and crops and could cause a food shortage in that area. There's a scary science behind these huge swarms. The locusts change colors, they eat toxic plants, and they even grow extra muscles as they band together to wreak havoc. For more on the story, we spoke to Matt Simon. He's a science reporter at Wired. We're talking about a specific species here called the desert locust. And locusts are actually about 20 species within the 7,000 species of grasshoppers that undergo this transformation into gregariousness, as they call it in the scientific community, when they are kind of isolated together, perhaps in a patch of vegetation, a biological switch flips in their bodies as they're crowding in there, they decide, okay, I'm going to be less of a solitary and more of a, essentially a pack animal flying in these giant formations, swarms, as you might call them. And when they do make that switch, their bodies actually transform. They go from this dull tan color to a yellow and black. And that's the signal that they're beginning to eat vegetation that's toxic and that makes themselves toxic. And that's a signal for the predators, do not eat me or you will get sick as well. Their muscles grow and that actually prepares them for for the journeys that they're about to undertake. And what happened in this particular situation where you had a couple of cyclones hit the same spot in the deserts of Oman and that grew a bunch of vegetation. You had these populations breeding in those vegetation in the desert and then all taking off in search of new vegetation elsewhere. That means going south into East Africa, north into Iran, and really just exploding their numbers as these sequential cyclones come through to give them the perfect conditions, not only for breeding, but for having a lot of vegetation to fuel these swarms. They can move something like 90 miles in a day, which is pretty insane considering their size. It's pretty fascinating to think that when they're solitary, like a dull brown color, and then once they start gathering up in these larger swarms, they just completely transform. It's like there's no need to hide anymore. We're going to be out here. We're going to change our colors so the predators think we're toxic. And the muscle growth and that transformation so they can make these long kind of migrations. But why do they gather in such huge, huge numbers? I know a lot of it has to do with breeding and all that. And they like moist soil to put their eggs in and all. But how does it get to such crazy numbers where they're in the billions and billions of locusts? It's a very hardy desert species. It can go many weeks without water, but it does, of course, need water from time to time. When these cyclones come through and dump a bunch of water on the desert, the female locusts will actually prod the soil with their abdomens to check its moisture. When they find that it's okay, they lay their eggs that hatch in about two weeks' time. It needs to stay moist that whole time or the eggs will uh, desiccate and be destroyed. But what you can end up happening is getting within a cubic meter of soil, something like a thousand eggs and spread across an entire landscape, you're talking about an extraordinary number of babies hatching. And when they do, they come into the world where there is a bunch of vegetation from the recent hydration that they burn through. And, you know, as they're crowding around, they're undergoing the switch to gregariousness. And when they get through all that vegetation, they say, we are moving along now. And they do so on mass, unfortunately, often into populated areas in East Africa. Yeah. And then that's where the big problem comes in because they start ruining crops. They love grain. 
grains. They load up on carbohydrates so they can make these long trips. And really, that's where they're announcing it's emergency outbreaks happening there in Africa. And, and there's food insecurity because of things like that. When they start eating all the crops and settling in on farms, I mean, they're destroying potential food for people at that point. They're after carbohydrates, much less so than protein. Actually, some researchers did some really interesting work feeding these locusts high-protein or low-protein diets or high-carbohydrates or low-carbohydrate diets and found that they actually grew less when they had low-carbohydrate diets. So when we're talking about carbohydrates and high Carbohydrate diets, we're, of course, talking about grains um, that they're finding right now in East Africa and really decimating not only the crops on the field, but all the stuff in storage. And we could lead to a good amount of food shortages in East Africa, especially considering this is probably the very beginnings of this swarm. They may increase in the numbers by 500 times by June, again, because more rains are going to come through and give them these breeding grounds, and they have so much vegetation to tear through. And the only way to really get it under control is using pesticides, right? In Kenya, they have about five planes that are spraying the area, and that's the only recourse that they have. One of the researchers I spoke to about this really compared it to the outbreak of wildfire. So the idea is you have a small fire breaking out, you stamp it out immediately, and you don't get a larger one. Uh, Typically, what these monitoring networks throughout East Africa, North Africa, and India are doing is they're people on the ground actually driving around in 4x4s looking for any signs of locusts because if they can catch an outbreak early, they spray them with the pesticides and kill them off before it gets out of control. The issue being with the, the pesticide that it is it's dangerous. It's very effective, but you have to have trained professionals doing this. So it's not like folks on a farm can have their own supply of pesticides. When these outbreaks start to begin, they can forecast where these locusts might start to move. And in this monitoring network, they'll mobilize. They'll say to Kenya, "Okay, this is going to be in your doorstep in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. You need to mobilize. And Kenya will do things like pull the pesticides out of central repositories and, and spread it throughout the country to be used at will. So it's a really robust network, and it's usually very good catching this, but this was breaking out in such an isolated part of the deserts of Oman that nobody saw it coming before it got too late. It just really got out of control before they could start using the pesticides with very much effectiveness. Matt Simon, science reporter at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. Another interesting science story we covered this week. Scientists at Northwestern University are working in collaboration with the U.S. Army to improve military uniforms to help protect soldiers against chemical weapons. The scientists are working on creating fabrics that can absorb and quickly neutralize deadly nerve agents. For more on how this all works, we spoke to Sophia Chen. She's a contributor to Wired. So this lab based in Northwestern University, led by Omar Farha, they made these fabrics that are coated in this chemical coating, and the chemical coating can actually neutralize or break down nerve agents such as VX and GD just upon contact within minutes. Just for people that don't know too much about it, this one VX, I mean, if if people heard the reports of Kim Jong-nam, this is the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, he was assassinated in an airport by two women who smeared some of that stuff on his face. He died within two hours of that. So they're looking to bring some more protection to our soldiers out in the field. How does this all work? How do they neutralize these nerve agents? So the nerve agents actually break down when you put them in water. They just break down really slowly. And so if you think about like a soldier's uniform, the soldier's uniform is dry. And so they need to figure out a way to first speed up this breakdown process in water and also make it happen on dry fabric because 
the soldiers are not going to be wearing wet clothing. Right, exactly. So, um, <laughs> so they use this molecule called MOF-808, and this molecule basically collects water from the air. So basically the shape of this molecule really makes water want to stick to it. And so if you're in at least 30% humidity, these molecules will collect enough water in order to do this chemical reaction where they break down the nerve agents. And then inside the molecule, there's also a catalyst. In this case, it's a zirconium atom, and it speeds up this process. So like normally, if you put nerve agents in water, they might break down over the course of days. And when you have this catalyst, it can make it happen on the order of minutes. That's crazy to think that being a dry fabric, you could just be in 30% humidity and the protection that you have on can start neutralizing this stuff. So how far have they gotten with all of this? I mean, I know they've done some testing and some try to do some real world tests with things that soldiers might have on them, dirt and, and sweat and all this stuff. How, how have some of these tests gone? They have figured out how to attach these molecules to cotton fabric. And so they've tested the cotton fabric. They've actually put like artificial sweat and diesel and like all these sorts of like contaminants, like things that might actually get on a soldier's uniform in battlefield conditions and tested how well does this chemical reaction still occur. And they found that it works pretty well with these contaminants. And actually it works better when you have sweaty fabric because the sweat has this extra water. Obviously, the the guy gets the, a little bit easier. It's going to work. And now next steps for this, obviously applying it to the fabrics and getting it into uniforms. They're trying to work on the wearability. They don't know if this coating could flake off, things like that. So it's just more testing. But they hope to get some of this stuff ready in the next few years so they can start applying it to soldiers' uniforms. Yeah. So now that they know that this works in a laboratory setting on an actual fabric, now they have to figure out how to make this into clothing. Sophia Chen, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. Finally, for this week, we have an update on the coronavirus. The hysteria is all over and it keeps spreading across the world right now. The virus has officially been renamed as COVID-19. Earlier in the week, we thought that the spread of the virus had gotten under control, but then we saw a surge in deaths and infections. The number shot up so quickly because of the way China changed the way it counts who is infected and who is not. The death toll in China went up to 1,367, which was up 254 from the day before. And the number of confirmed cases jumped to just under 60,000, which was up 15,000 people from the day before. And the reason why there was a, such a jump in this is that they began tallying these cases with a lower bar of a clinical diagnosis. Before this, People were tested, it was sent off to a lab, and then it'd come back either positive or negative for being infected for the coronavirus. But because there are so many people and they want to make sure that they can treat people quickly before any more serious illness or death can occur, doctors are now using their own analysis and lung imaging rather than relying on these laboratory tests. More than 13,000 of the newly reported infections were a result from this new way of counting. It's a, a very much a preemptive approach to counting this. But one of the other things that we kept talking about were all these people that were stuck on this Diamond Princess cruise ship. A lot of people had been wondering, what's it like to be quarantined for two weeks on a cruise ship? And there was one couple from Santa Clarita, California, who was on this ship that is docked at port at Yokohama, Japan. Their names are Carl Goldman 
and his wife, Jerry Cerati Goldman. He surprised her with a 16-day cruise aboard the ship as a combined birthday and Christmas gift, and now they're stuck there in their cabin. The Goldmans are owners of a radio station, KHTS in Santa Clarita, and have been detailing parts of their quarantined experience on the station's website, hometownstation.com. We actually got a chance to hear from Carl Goldman about his experience, and he started off by telling us how they're holding up there and how the team at Princess Cruises is treating them and helping them out. We are in totally good spirits, and uh, Princess has been great. We, we realize all of this is out of our control, and uh, we just take it one day at a time. We're lucky because we've got a mini suite, so we have our own balcony. In fact, I'm standing on our balcony right now looking at the Yokohama dock. There are probably about 50, 60 ambulances, other emergency vehicles, military trucks, uh, facing me right now. And if I look to my left, the paparazzi are on standby as well as the helicopters. Last night, we had 65 more outbreaks of the coronavirus, and it took them all night to remove the folks. They've placed about a uh, 100-foot tube from the entrance of our ship, and have uh, that tube then has an opening and two military trucks are holding the ends of that tied up. And that what they do is they pull one ambulance in at a time to remove people with the virus. And there were 65 of them yesterday. And that brings our total, I believe, up to 135 now. Carl, how have the crew been communicating with you? Are there announcements being made over speakers? Or are they coming to you personally? Yeah, we're in pretty good communication. First, we have access to 24-7 news channels from the United States. Princess also downloaded and set up access, so we were able to watch the Academy Awards live, although it was early Monday morning our time. And what they've done is they make announcements through the loudspeaker about three or four times a day, or if an emergency thing needs to be uh, dropped us, and that comes as an uh, as announcement into our cabin notes, similar to the way uh, an airplane pilot will override everything else. This whole ordeal must have thrown a huge wrench into all of your vacation plans. How do you go about making the best of it while, while being in quarantine for so long? Well, actually, we were on the last day of a 16-day uh, cruise that was part of an 18-day vacation. I had given my wife as a birthday and Christmas present, and so it, it it was fine. We did the entire cruise. Our challenge was, as owners of the Santa Clarita radio station, KHTS, we have to work. We still work 24-7 anyway, so we have brought everything along and were able to uh, spend five, six hours a day working during the cruise and via internet, via cell phone, texting, and then... When this hit, we, our challenge was we had not planned to be away an entire month and had not worked ahead beyond the days we were scheduled to be gone. So we had to scramble and figure out a lot of stuff about paying bills, letting the, uh, the banks, our banks were great in letting uh, staff members sign our checks, taking care, just taking care of a lot of stuff that we had not planned ahead of time. And we were able to do that in about in the first 24 hours. Now our routine is because of the time difference, we get up in the mid, midnight, probably around 3 in the morning, and start 
communicating with our staff, working with them. And now we're working probably about 10 hours a day. And then we have free time after that to just uh, do reading, watch TV. And then luckily our cabin has an adjoining cabin. Two of our friends, another couple from St. George, Utah, came with us. And the first day on the cruise, we had Princess open up the uh, door between the two cabins on our balcony. So we can go back and forth as we choose. And luckily, with uh, movies, and as I said, one reason Princess has been great is they've downloaded plenty of new movies so we don't have to watch Dumbo five times because we'd already been through all the movies and ended up um, now we have movie night before we go to bed. Have any officials there given you any idea of what happens at the end of all of this? I I know the 19th is supposed to be the last day of your quarantine, right? We were nervous at first because we'd heard reports that once we got back to the United States, we'd have to be quarantined all over again. And uh, luckily, we learned from the U.S. Embassy a few days ago that that's not the case. In fact, we're more clear of the virus if we make it through the 14 days than anyone. So that's that's uh, that's been a relief. Also, we've heard from Princess and the Japanese health officials that if we don't come down with the virus in the 14 days, we'll be able to uh, leave the ship on the 19th or 20th because we know that the process of screening that final day is going to take a while. When they first screened us the first day, it was about an 18-hour process. The cruise ship has um, about about 3,500-plus passengers on it, so I mean passengers and crew. So when you go through it, it's a pretty long time. There really has been a huge hysteria surrounding the coronavirus. I mean, anytime I feel a little tickle in my throat or something, I, I feel like I, I'm possibly getting it or whatnot. Carl, you and your wife have made it through this far, but are you afraid of getting the coronavirus at all? Do you feel pretty safe there? Well, we don't know because we're in the 14-day quarantine period. It was a little freaky watching. And first, when they announced six, last night, 65 more passengers had it. And then seeing the uh, army out there uh, and handling it one at a time, that that freaked us out a little bit. But the good news is the Japanese health officials about five days ago uh, gave each person a thermometer. And so whenever we sniffle or sneeze, we just take our temperature. And that's supposedly the first sign of getting the virus is if we go above 99.5. And so so we do, we do temperature reads three times a day. That's mandatory. And then, of course, whenever we sneeze or sniffle uh, or cough, we grab the thermometer and are relieved to know that... Um, and we don't have it yet and hopefully we'll not get it. Yes. De- I mean, definitely. We hope that you or your wife or no one else there on board contract the coronavirus. I mean, we just hope this thing ends very quickly for you. Carl Goldman, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. And thanks for checking in. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 